and welcome to more of a comment than a question. My name is Smithy Mehta, and joining me is my friend and co-host Paul Connor. Paul, how was your day? Hey, Smithy. Uh, actually, pretty good. I had a job interview today uh, for a oh, postdoc, exciting. and quite out of character, I did not screw up the interview. I am a terrible, <laughs> terrible interviewer normally, but I think <laughs> I was just in a headspace where. I had convinced myself that there's no chance I will get the job and I may as well just enjoy, enjoy this conversation <laughs> with enjoy this, the, like, yeah. um, this faculty member who does interesting work. Uh-huh. So that was the attitude I took into it and it, it went really nice. well. So let's, we'll see how that goes. Watch nice. this space. That's exciting. Yeah, fingers crossed. Great. So today we are very, very, very excited to have um, a very special guest with us. We are joined by Mickey Inslicht, um, who of course is um, a professor of psychology at University of Toronto, also co-appointed um, at the Rotman School of Management. Mickey does really interesting work, has had an illustrious career, and it sort of does research in like social psychology, cognitive science, and neuroscience. Um, and Mickey is also a fellow podcaster and hosts the Two Psychologists for Beer podcast, which we love and um, is kind of like one of the inspirations for our podcast. So, Mickey, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I must admit, it's super uh, exciting to be on the show because I listen to you guys every week and I usually listen to my podcasts when I'm working out. Usually in the past, in the before times, it was, I, was, I was listening to podcasts on my commute. But now it's when I'm working out and I, I hear you guys every Monday morning. So it's nice to, uh, to hear you and see you. <laughs> yeah, nice. Thank you. Before we get into the beers, I just want to say how jealous I am of your name because I, it just rolls off the tongue so nicely. And it's so like, I, I don't know, Mickey Inslicht. There's just It just has a nice ring to it. And I'm very jealous because nobody can say my name, right? Oh my gosh! Like I, <laughs> my name was like, uh, and not not a name I liked at all. Really? Up. No one, no one could pronounce it. Um, <laughs> I was always always mispronounced. Uh, although later in life, uh, well, now I appreciate it because it's unique. So mm. if you if you Google intellect, it's me and my immediate <laughs> family. So uh, that's nice. Uh, right. And then I also had the, the 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 distinct pleasure of hearing Dutch people pronounce my name, and they they pronounce it very well. Oh. So I like that as well. How, how do they pronounce it? Inslicht. Mm. Um, so you know the the ha there should actually that's the uh, you know the the right pronunciation. The right to, but right. yeah, I just I say inslicht when I when I pronounce it myself mm. in English. Oh. And were you always Mickey rather than Michael? I mean, on Zoom it says Michael. Hmm. Yes. Uh, so Michael is the name of my birth certificate. Uh, it is uh, my official name, but my parents called me Mickey from day one, and I've always been Mickey. I, there was a point in my life where I had an uncle who was very close to me who sadly just passed away. But, um, he, uh, he said, you know, eventually you're going to, you're going to stop calling yourself Mickey, right? You're going to be a Michael. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, like when I started high school or maybe when I started university, uh, but yeah, I just never, never held. And, um, actually at one point I had like, a, a, my name was, you know, you had to be invited to call me Mickey. It was mm. like, every, I was Michael to everybody, unless you knew me, then you were Mickey. But then I realized, actually, I have no control over what people refer to me as. Right. I just don't. So I just let it go, and you can call me whatever you like. But Mickey, yes. I mean, uh, not Mike, though. You cannot call me Mike. Because <laughs> that's not my yeah. name. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, in, in honor of our guest, we're going to try drinking beer again. And we should warn you, Mickey. <laughs> so we have tried this before. <laughs> And it went really badly. So we, <laughs> I think we're both total lightweights. So I guess like in light of that, my first beer for the podcast is going to be, um, I believe it's pronounced 
Miller Light. <laughs> it's a, a little-known brewery uh, from the U.S. Um, so let me open it. And uh, and what what will you two be drinking? You want to go, Smirty? Oh, I'm going to pull a Yoel and actually drink some gin and tonic because that's all I have at home. So, yep. All right, excellent. I've got. Uh, my my choice of beers has been limited because uh, I'm lazy and I just go to what the closest bottle shops near my house right now. I'm drinking something called the Roman Candle. It's an IPA uh, from Bellwoods Brewery, which I drink often. It's probably my favorite beer. Certainly my favorite beer in Toronto. I think my second favorite brewery in Canada. Um, so Very cool. I like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, cheers. 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 Okay, so Mickey, first question. So like Paul just had an interview and he might like he's on the job market and assuming that he gets a faculty position, I mean, we know that in academia, this faculty advi- like advisor advisee relationship is just kind of, you know, complicated. Sometimes you need, you know, it's hit and miss and it just takes, you know, effort to, f- you know, build like rapport and stuff. So what would you say like what would your advice be or like what has have, like throughout your career, like what have been some things that you thought about in terms of a good, you know, faculty uh, mentor and mentee relationship? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, you know, you'd probably get different responses, different answers uh, from different people. We all have our own, I think, philosophies. Um, I think for an advisor, it's, I mean, for, for me, like, it's probably one of the best, if not the best part of the job is, is working with graduate students, young people who are energetic, uh, who are enthusiastic, and you know, keep me young. Uh, so I just, I really really like it. Um, I find it so uh, rewarding. Um, but of course, uh, it's it's something you have to think about, uh, like how to do it and you know how to do it well. And and I I hope I'm doing it well. I guess you'd have to ask my my students to see if I actually am. Um, but you know, I think the first thing is you know I think every person is different, so you got to actually get to know the person and, and and find out what what they want, what what their style is like. Some students. Uh, they want to meet every single week or even multiple times a week. And they, they have lots of questions and they want in some ways, and, and I don't mean this pejoratively, they want you know an advisor to hold their hand a little bit, at least at first. Um, some students don't want that at all. Some students, you know, they want to just see me whenever they want to see me. Uh, once a month, uh, sometimes even less. Um, I think I, I typically, I'm, I see my students all the time, whether we have formal meetings is, is something else, but we're always interacting. And now we're on Slack all the time together. We have uh, catch-ups, you know, uh, once a week and then lab meetings, et cetera. Um, but I think first just establishing rapport and then figuring out like, uh, you know, how how the student works best uh, and trying to try to meet them at in, in that spot. Um and then, uh, so one thing, you know, given, you know, given my research on uh, self-control, self-regulation, goals, um, I'm a big believer in setting goals and, and setting deadlines for students. And these are soft deadlines. I mean, they're just, you know, let's aim for, you know, get, get me a first draft of the paper. Let's aim for it in a month. And then a month passes and we'll, you know, put it on each other's calendars. And then, you know, oftentimes I'll send it, often, sometimes not. And they'll be, okay, let's talk about it. And they're, you know, they're soft goals, but I think this really helps students orient their time and manage their time because I think uh, this job is really weird in the sense that, you know, there are no rules. I mean, there are very few rules. I, well, faculty, there's hardly any, but for students a bit more, you got, you got some more hoops to jump through, but it really, it's, it's about um, your own drive and motivation. And uh, I think some students can get lost. They can get lost with that freedom. 
um, and you have to be really self-driven. And, but sometimes you need to just help, you know, scaffolding that. So I see that as my job as well. My, I see my job is trying to get students to find their passion, help them find it, and then also reach what they're passionate about. Um, that's truly what I believe. We, the best work we do is when we care about it. And um, so, you know, I know some advisors assign people, uh, their students, you know, projects. And I, you know, I dabble that a little bit, but I just don't think it works. I think it's better to let them lead and, and, and guide them uh, in, on their journey. Yeah, nice. And what do you look for in graduate? Like, what do you think makes a good graduate student? And what makes a bad graduate? Like, <laughs> what are the red flags and what are the green right. flags? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Um, I think open-mindedness uh, is, 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 so with dr- motivation drive, I, I think that's a baseline. They have to be driven. Um, you know, having something they like, something they're passionate about, but just being open-minded. Um, it surprises me how, how often I'll see graduate students who are applying who have like a really, really firm idea about what they want to study. They must study this thing. Um, and, you know, having, having been in this, you know, uh, in this profession for a while now, you know, typically undergraduates, you know, they, they end up saying what they want to study is what their undergrad advisor studied. And they were, aren't necessarily exposed to uh, different kinds of ideas. So I think, uh, so I love this. I, I had this once, um, actually, it's Alexa Tullett, who's a former student of mine, who's also a fellow podcaster. And uh, I remember I asked her in the interview, I said, you know, what do you want to study? And she goes, you know, I'm not really sure. I want to see what, what options are, are open to me. Um, and I want to explore that. And then I'll go for what I like. And I'm like, awesome. That's fantastic. Like, I, I, I love that answer so much. It was a perfect answer. I think some, some advisors would be like, uh, you know, run away. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, not, yeah. Not, not, not me. That's uh, fascinating. I don't know. I have so many questions. Have you had much conflict? Like, every now and then, you know, I've, at Berkeley, I've seen there's conflict there's advisor grad student conflict like it just doesn't click it just doesn't work out um i had a little bit of conflict with one of my advisors in my first year like since then it's been it's been pretty smooth sailing um but yeah what's been your experience with that as a grad student and then also as an advisor and yeah how i guess what are your best tips for kind of avoiding it or getting through it or i guess recognizing when something's not working and something needs to change you know Mm -hmm. um well first of all i think i'm not sure conflict is completely avoidable um you're 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 working with someone for five to seven years um you're you know you're you know you're human Uh, you're not always at your best and sometimes both of you are not at your best and fights can happen um i think i'm trying to think about all my students um i think not for every single student but for for many of them at various points there there was conflict um by conflict i mean like you know you know i i typically i'm being a jerk i'm typically i'm like you know giving negative feedback and i didn't you know i'm blunt um and i didn't you know frame it as nicely as i would have liked and it was poorly received because i didn't deliver it very well um and that, you know, causes friction and, and, you know, but I'm also a person that like, I, I can apologize. I, I, that's, that's, that's in my nature to, to, to see my own errors and mistakes. And I'm happy to apologize if I think I've done something wrong. So first I think you have to realize it's, you know, you're going again to conflict every once in a while, hopefully not a lot. Um, like none of my students, I think really was just one time maybe for like a few of them. And that's basically it. 
Um, so, uh, and then we kind of talked about it and, and, and worked it out just like I would with any other relationship is talking, talking things through, but sometimes there just might not be a good fit. Um, I've had some occasions where, uh, I was worried it was a poor fit. And, and at one point it was like a, a relationship wasn't as smooth as I would have liked to have liked it to have been not necessarily conflict prone, but actually more like avoidance. We were just weren't like, you know, communicating much with each other. And then I just, you know, sat this thing down saying, listen, um, it doesn't seem like we're, we're connecting here and, uh, like it doesn't need to be this way. And like, I first said, listen, I, I want you in the lab, uh, but our relationship needs to improve. And, you know, first is like, do you want to be in this lab? Like, maybe you don't, maybe, maybe you thought I would be a different kind of advisor uh, than I am. I, I can only be me. Um, and so we talked about that and then, uh, it was, you know, it was very clear that no, yes, this person did want to stay in the lab. And then we're like, okay, well we have to, we have to change the way we, we, we talk about research and do research. And actually what, you know, what I did was I just kind of let go. I didn't, I just said, okay, this, this student will, is going to be on his or her path. And again, my job is not to make sure it's my path. My job is to help them find their journey, you know, find their path and help them be as successful as they can be on their path. Um, and once I let go and, 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 and let, you know, let this person do what they wanted to do, it was, it was much, much better for this person and for myself. So I kind of, that was a really important lesson of just like, sometimes the best thing to do is just let go a little bit. Um, but you know, this is like, you know, I'm just giving you my own experience. I've had, I've, I don't think I've had lots of conflict with my students. So, yeah. but what are some red flags? I guess you mentioned green flags. So you could imagine it just the opposite of that being close-minded, but is there anything else that stands out to you as being not a good sign? Um, well, so again, I mean, the open-mindedness uh, uh, is, is critical. So it's someone who's like really, really stuck on, on what they want to do and how they want to do it. Like I, I, I'm not too interested uh, in working with someone like that. Um, again, these aren't red flags. They're just, you know, what I value. So, I, you know, a big part of our, of our, uh, of our work is writing. So being able to communicate, uh, in a, in, you know, uh, in writing, uh, being able to in, not, not dread it too much. I mean, I think a lot, even, even the best writers don't like it all the time. Um, but not, uh, it shouldn't be too terrifying. So if someone really has a, has a tough time with writing, um, I, I think it might be hard for me to work with them because it's, uh, I think it's so critical in what we do. Um, and I just, you know, I don't know how to teach writing. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do it. I, I, I spend a lot of time on my students' writing and give them, give them feedback whenever I can. Um, but I, I know people say, you know, you can't teach it, you just know it or not. I, I think that's probably a cop-out. Probably, I'm sure there are certainly things you can learn to be a better communicator. But it seems like something like quant and, and, and math and stats, which of course has a, there's also another ability there that a lot of people are scared of, but I feel like you can, one can, can learn it and there's so many resources out there. So I'm less worried about my students' quant, quant abilities and I, I, knowing that they'll learn it while they're here. Um, so, you know, having a fear of writing and, and not, not wanting to write, like, I think that's, that's difficult for me, at least to work with someone like that. Yeah. Writing is tricky, right? I think one of the best ways you can learn how to write is just to read a lot. Like, I think people don't realize how, mu how much it helps to just read. Cause when you read, then you're like, oh yeah, somebody like does a turn of phrase or they'll say something and you're like, oh, that's very neat. I, you know, and then you kind of, you emulate that to a certain extent, um, which is, um, but yeah, I, I think one of the hardest thing about starting to write is just the getting the ideas down. I actually really enjoy writing. I think once you sit down and you 
know what you're going to say, then it's just fun. And I think the last part of writing where you're just like editing things, that's kind of fun, but I know not everybody agrees. Yeah. With, uh, with writing, I mean, I get, that's where I, that's where I experience flow is when I'm writing. Like I just lose, lose all time. Um, but yeah, the, the first, uh, the starting it is difficult. Um, so typically what I do is I will end my, my day of writing or my whatever, two hours of writing with jotting down notes for the next day, like jotting down notes for like, okay, I want to, you know, th this first paragraph, paragraph is going to be about this. The second paragraph will be about that. That way I've got a bit of a head start so that I'm not, you know, it's the startup cost that's, that, that's high for me. So that helps me a lot. Man, I can't stand writing. I hate it. I see it as such a chore. I'm not scared of it. Like, I think I can do it. I can do it fine. I can, I can tell you what the psychological theories say and what they predict and what I did in my experiment and what happened and what I conclude from that. Like, that's fine. Like, I can do that. But I just, it's such a chore to me. It's the part I enjoy the least. But I was, Mickey, like, you are... You like writing, so are you going to write a book? Because this is kind of the career trajectory that a lot of people take, right? You're almost at that stage. Uh, I'm worried now that podcasting is distracting you from writing a great book and we're being deprived. Of, of, <laughs> well, uh, it's, it's funny that you ask because I, I have actually been trying to to get a book deal. And so far, I'm just not getting uh, too much interest, I'll be honest. I had a... Uh, on my sabbatical, which is like what a couple of years ago now, I put together a book proposal on on the replication crisis, actually. Um, and actually, it was, and I'm not sure if this was a good move or a bad move, but um, maybe it was bad because then no agent would, would would take it on. But it was the 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 idea of the the book was kind of like the the same spirit of some of my blog posts, where they're very very personal. They're about me. So it's kind of like the replication crisis through my experience and my own lens and including my own like anxieties and frustrations and uh, crises, uh, personal crises uh, around it. Um, so I, I really enjoyed writing that proposal. In fact, it probably ended up being too long. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't get any any bites. So I might return to it one day. We'll see. Um, but for right now, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it aside. Yeah. But that's fascinating that you mentioned your own... Um you know, struggles with the replication crisis. And I mean, we just, the SBSV just happened, um, right? So I just wanted to, I guess, ask you about, you know, I mean, you've been, you know, in social psychology for this long. What, like, how would you sort of describe the trajectory of the field since the time that you have been here? Like, what are some things that sort of stand out in terms of how the field has shifted from the time that you have been a part of it? Wow, I mean, it really has changed. I feel it changed tremendously, in, especially in the past ten years. But you know, when I first started, it was like bad social psychology. I mean, bad as in like freewheeling, like ideas, like crazy ideas. You know, wow, can you believe that? Like, you know, the classic example is like sitting next to a box makes you more creative, or you know, some crazy stuff like that. Um, so there's all these like really creative. Uh, interesting ideas typically coming in, in you know uh in one of our journals like science um and and then things you know just changed uh i mean changed dramatically uh like in i guess 2011 for me is that that's when like things really really changed for me uh when i uh, it was reading this one paper which and you had leaf nelson um on your podcast which i enjoyed listening to listening to him and uh you know yeah, that the, paper that false, false positive psychology, positive psychology paper, yeah yeah, that was uh, uh, revelatory. That that 
that changed the way I, I looked at things. Um, like I, I, you know, I've once, I've once described that paper, or my experience of that paper as, um, like a veil being lifted from my eyes. Um, I just could not see psychology the same anymore. It was like what they described was exactly, you know, what I did and what I know lots of people did because I, I was taught this by my Ivy League professors. I was, I was taught to p-hack. It wasn't called p-hacking then. It was called exploring your data, getting as much as you can from the data. Um, and, uh, and then just seeing how that warps our inferences, our statistical inferences kind of just like made me depressed. And then what was worse for me is what well, took me a while to, you know, I sat with it for a while and, and, um, but then what kind of made me realize that I needed to like at least speak up if not, you know, yeah, I didn't, I haven't done much other than just write a few, few blog posts, but I just saw people start discounting these, you know, what I think are well-intentioned people who try to make the science as good as possible and, you know, imputing Ill, Ill motives on them. Like they're just, Oh, they're just trying to be stars themselves and they're just trying to take people down. And, and, or, or the worst was, uh, and this is, I think, what did it for me. These are just personality psychologists who are trying to get even with social psychologists. <laughs> um, and I'm like, uh, what the hell, man? Like, look what's in front of you. Right. Um, and that's what kind of... Uh, and then and the other thing was like, what, what, what was also going on was a lot of um, pointing fingers, including from one of my you know, infamous colleagues, just pointing fingers at people, calling them names and, and, and really shaming them. Um, and I, and I just saw that, that that's, that's a dead end. That's just not going to work. No, one, no one's going to respond well to that. I mean, you're seeing that now on Twitter where, you know, people aren't, don't respond well to being called out. Um, so I decided to, to, to kind of point the finger at myself um, and, and say, okay, what if, what if I scream at myself? What would happen then? Yeah. Um, and I think yeah. Serena, oh, sorry. Serena made this point where I thought was a really good point. Serena Chen, um, that, that, you know, it's people don't want to change, right? It's, I think a lot of it is that it's difficult to change. People are sort of set in their ways. And when it's just like pointing fingers, then it's much easier to not pay attention to that critique, right? Because it's coming from somebody that's just, you know, you're just, they're just rude and they're just being disrespectful. So it's much easier to not pay attention to those critiques. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't help. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And it's also makes it an easy target, right? Like, like I can't, I, I, I won't even listen to you because you're such a jerk. Um, so mind you, like, you know, even when it was said poli politely and with kindness, people still didn't listen. So, um, you know, there's a, a good, it's an interesting question of whether blood was needed to be shed uh, in, in this, you know, uh, revolution. Um, yeah. could, could all the changes we've seen uh, happen without uh, some of the craziness? I used to think, yes, I, I used to think, you know, why can't we just all get along and, and just, just go through this peacefully? But I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. I think... Um, you know, despite me, you know, not wanting to say this, I think th that shame tactic, um, right, might have worked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're not fully there. Like Smriti, you should talk about your prosem and the kind of papers that are still being kind of um, shared, still being shared and studied. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, somewhat credulously. So Right. I mean, I was, you know, recently assigned this. I don't know what to talk about. You don't have to name the papers, but like. <laughs> right. There were some just... papers that I was assigned for a pro seminar or like a seminar. And, you know, it's just, you know, stuff that isn't substantiated. It's just a lot of unsubstantiated claims and just, you know, massive sort of flaws in 
just the arguments. And I feel like if I question it because of the nature of the topic and who is writing the papers, it feels like you like if you critique them, then, you know, it's like you're somehow, you know, a bad person that doesn't believe in certain values. And it's yeah, it's just uncomfortable. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think they're actually, uh, you might be conflating a couple of things there, I, I, I wonder. So first, you probably said, like, we're not quite there yet. I fully agree. I was just at SPSB last, was it last week, last weekend? And I was part of a, a panel. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it seems like people, you know, are, are openly doubting any any worth in, in pre-registration. Oh, you, you, you know, science is about exploring, as if pre-registration doesn't allow for exploration. Um, so I still, I, I definitely think we're we're not where we want to be yet. Things have certainly improved a lot, a great deal, but uh, we're not there yet, not even close. Um, I get the sense uh, that, uh, and I remember hearing this once in a in a seminar. A faculty member said, "Well, now that the replication crisis is over, uh, blah blah blah," and I'm like, "Wait, did I didn't get that message. It's over." Um, I thought I thought we were still struggling with like you know. Uh, inference and meaning and measurement and theory uh and generalizability um oh yeah yeah so all kinds uh, of crises are coming out (laughs) yeah yeah. i mean i think at some point i I saw some 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 funny tweet uh the past couple days of like the uh what is it that the, the the crisis factory uh, coming out of the open science movement? <laughs> I think like when you yeah. frame when you frame everything as a crisis, then yeah. nothing is a crisis. I think there's some right. marketing I that think, needs to be done. Yeah, t- like Talia Arconi has a paper on the generalizability crisis. I recently read the paper by Elliot Berkman um, on the practicality crisis, and I'm like, yeah, they're just a new one every day. Measurement crisis, the <laughs> right. uh, meaning crisis, a theory crisis, yeah. Yeah, doesn't doesn't end. But I was saying also, I think, uh, Smriti, you're um, maybe conflating something else. And that is this other thing, which I know you guys talk a lot about on the podcast. And and sometimes you and I do as well in our podcast, which is this kind of um, creeping orthodoxy, Uh, uh, you know, that there are certain ideas that are sacred, there are sacred, there are values, they're sacred values. Um, And like those are off limits. Uh, is I think you know what you're referring to. Like so, can can a paper about a specific topic uh, that again is that's part of this you know uh, that falls under a sacred value? Can that get a fair shake? Can that can can we speak about it openly and honestly, um, given the current political climate? Um, and it's incredibly difficult. It really is difficult. And every time I do it, let's say on the podcast, um, I get I'm worried. Right, I'm worried about like, oh God, someone else is going to be upset that we're talking. Oh, we're talking about you know. So we had one this one episode, um, sexism and racism on campus, where we were talking about two published papers, and for the most part, we were super positive about about uh, I think it was both these papers, but we you know quibbled on little things around the edges. Um, I'm still so so worried how about how that would be received, and and it seems like these kinds of topics, especially you know in the wake of um, the murder of George Floyd, it's just, it just seems like. Um, there's a re- renewed zeal for for these topics, and uh, a real uh, lack of appetite for dissent, um, and that right. worries me. Yeah, like I in that same seminar, I brought up the retraction of the because it's like a professional development thing, and I brought up the retraction of the mentorship paper, the Alsha Blue paper that we discussed, and I said that sort of troubles me, right? Like I, I and I feel like the, the values of you know, diversity and equity inclusion, I think they're super valuable, but I like, I feel like people think that they're somehow exclusive to also being, 
you know, critical and rigorous and making sure that we're questioning things as, you know, scientists. Um, so it's, uh, but people, yeah, other grad students were super angry about it. There were some like really strong emotions in my response to bringing that up. And people were saying that, oh, I, as if I'm trying to say that sexism doesn't exist in academia, people don't want to, you know, talk openly about it. It's, yeah, well, that's one thing that I really like about, about both of you is you, you, you've shown remarkable uh, courage in t talking about these things. You, you, as far as I know, you two were the first, at least podcasters, to talk about the, the Al Shalbi paper um, on, I think so, right? I mean, on, even on, on, tw on Paul, I think you on Twitter uh, uh, agitated a little bit about it. The, <laughs> so basically, it only happened because we had just nothing to talk about that week. And that whole, we always record on Friday and that whole thing happened on a Thursday. So I just happened to be on Twitter and see that whole thing blow up. And I was like, Hmm, this is interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll actually read this paper. And then I read the paper and I looked at Twitter and I, I just thought the reaction was crazy. I thought it was just crazy. And I, this is like become, a real hobby horse of mine because you there have I've been a, like a lot of <laughs> a lot of people really coming out and defending the idea of uh, rigor double standards um james heathers wrote a blog about it uh and people were sharing it saying everybody must read this and you know the <laughs> implicit message is everybody must agree with this uh and I, I i don't agree and i you know i've tweeted about it a number of times and there's a lot of people uh, that disagree with that, but there's also a lot of people that do agree with that. And I, I what I am, f what I'm interested in, in at, at the moment is just it just seems like these sides aren't really talking to each other. Like we t we tend to talk to people that agree with us, uh, and people who like want rigor double standards and like want like um, the ability to, I guess. They wouldn't describe it as, as this, but I would say want more kind of censorship of what they see as dangerous, dangerous findings or dangerous ideas. Don't kind of talk to people that agree with them. And, and I think that there is there is room to have a discussion about this. Like, I think like we can unpack this stuff as adults and talk about, well, you know, what 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 would what makes a finding dangerous or like what um, and, you know, what what about the risks of um imposing different levels of rigor and and what that might do to the re reliability of the evidence in a scientific field i think we could talk about this but no like it just seems to me that nobody ever does and i think a couple of people engage with me on twitter but then as soon as i asked a follow-up question they were just like i don't have time i don't want to engage and that's fine like you don't you don't have to but like somebody <laughs> in the, somebody in academia has has to be having these discussions and I don't know, like, it's cool to do a podcast and have people listen to it, and most of the people that listen to it are probably on our side of it, but if nobody on the other side is listening to it, we're not actually making progress, and this thing, this this rift is, is continuing to grow and fester, and I don't know, it's 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 a weird time to be in academia. Um, yeah, definitely weird. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the, the concern for, uh, I think what you're referring to is people have a high, high concern for uh, not harming people, right? So this is like, you know, this kind of do no harm. That's the, their number one um, motive. Um, and I totally understand that. And I also, you know, to some extent share that value. 
But like, I always just go back to one of my favorite books that I've read in the past, you know, it's five years uh, is this wonderful book by Alice Dreger um, called Galileo's Middle Finger. And, um, and if you guys haven't read it, you, you definitely should check it out. It, it was remarkable um, because, you know, she, she was, she's actually an activist. She was an activist. Uh, 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 she's a biomedical researcher, done lots of really, really important work on um, uh, intersex people and uh, realizing that the medical establishment had really wronged them. And so she, was, she became an activist for, for this, a scholar and an activist. Um, and then eventually she, you know, stumbled on, uh, you know, in this same kind of world, but she started, you know, following work on, on trans, uh, trans issues and, and the psychology of trans people. And she essentially fell, fell afoul of, uh, you know, certain, what were then emerging orthodoxies about what was acceptable, you know, uh, to say about trans people. And then she was essentially vilified and smeared online. And I think it drove her crazy. I think it, I think it really, really upset her. And she was offline for, I think, a few years. Um, and anyway, so I guess a long, long segue here. But, you know, in, in the book, she, she writes, and again, she's an activist, or she, or she was one at least. Um, she says, uh, and I think it's so true, is, you know, truth needs to come first. Like as a value, as a scholar, truth needs to come first. And then um, doing good or not doing harm come second um now of course truth is subjective i mean it can be i think there is there are there is truth i don't think it's all postmodern, but i think there's there are different views of it right and there's different you know we can't always see it all it's small t truth um so it's really really hard to ferret it out but that's our job to do and if you see evidence that is you know contrary to a, a cherished value well i think i think the truth comes first it just has to, uh, because that's going to help you help those people that you really, really care about. Um, so that's something I, I, I think about a lot. Um, I also think, you know, I remember we had her on our podcast a few years ago now. And, you know, I, I, we asked her about being an activist. Like, is that, do you think that is even a, an appropriate thing for a scientist to do? Uh, I, I, I actually don't think it is. I, I, you know, if you're, if you're a scientist, I don't, I don't think you should be an activist, but she argued, no, she had no problem with it because everyone would have, um, uh, as long as there's many activists pursuing their own various agendas, then whatever overreach, you know, each of these groups, you know, you know, does, it'll cancel each other out. But, you know, that's nice in principle, but it relies on there being a diversity of, uh, causes that that people are you know uh, agitate about, and I don't think that's 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 true right now. Wow, that's I find that really interesting. You would say that that you don't think academics should be activists, because I would. I mean, I like do a, a lot of activism in the past and not much these days. But you know, some kind of uh, canvassing for the Democratic Party. Uh, there was no canvassing this last election and I did some f phone banking um, and I I guess I don't I don't think it conflicts with uh, my identity as a scientist and truth seeker but I I, I think I keep it quite separate uh, from my work my scientific work yeah um, I was gonna say there might be a difference between doing activism like as a side thing as opposed to you know doing activism with your research or the topic that you're working with Although the other tension there, of course, is that I think maybe in other parts of science or even in other parts of psychology, 
that distinction might be easier to make than it is to make in social psychology, just because I think, you know, the, the sort of history of social psychology, I mean, you know, like Kurt Lewin, right? He talked about action research. I think it's always sort of been about doing things like doing research that does good to the world in some sense, right? And I, I, I do agree with that to the extent that I think the kind of things we study are so relevant to whatever kind of time we're living in that it, to me, like makes sense that what we do should be relevant to what's happening in the world, right? And it should sort of aim at either explaining or changing sort of the social environment in some way that maybe benefits people, so to that extent, I think it is a little bit harder to separate, you know, doing good from doing good social psychology, but I'm open to arguments. Yeah. I mean, for sure, it gets, it gets murky. Um, and, you know, you can try to apply some of your principles and help the world, right? I mean, I don't, I, I don't, I don't want, I have no problem with people doing that. But again, as I, I, I think the main thing is the truth needs to be your number one value. Like seeking truth needs to be your number one value, including like, hey, this big um, intervention that I've poured my heart into that I've got so much grant money to get and all these students' careers are on the line because they needed publications out of this. But guess what? It didn't work out. Like, I think you've got to follow that and be honest about that. And there are so many incentives there aligned for you to like, to... Uh, you know, not, not commit fraud. I'm not arguing that, but like, you know, cut corners to explore, frame your exploration as confirmation, um, look at a, at a moderation as like the actual main thing that you care about. Um, so for me, it's just like trying to eliminate as many, uh, you can't eliminate them entirely, but reduce as many uh, conflicts uh, for truth seeking as you can. Um, so, and, you know, and, and Paul, uh, with your, you know, uh, you know, your questioning about, uh, what I said about activism, you know, I started, the, I got into the field, like my main goal was to make the world a better place. Like that was, that was what I wanted to do. I first, you know, I told this to Smriti the other day, um, uh, I, you know, I, I got into the field and studied stigma and uh, stereotype threat. And for the first 12, 15 years of my career, that's what I did. And I thought that was like the, I, I really, really wanted to, you know, at least make a dent in this problem. That was my, that was why I got into the field. Um, so I understand the appeal of it, but I, you know, maybe this is overblown. I, I think people disagree with me on this or, or some people do. Um, I just can't help but wonder if, if I didn't have that motive and I just was want to study stereotype threat because it's an interesting phenomenon and yeah, okay, it's going to help people. Hopefully, um, would I have been more impartial in my, you know, uh, in my examination and evaluation of the, of the evidence? Right. Um, yeah. I so suspect you can do both, right? Yeah, I think the happy medium might be letting that activist part of you choose the topic that you choose to study, but then maintaining sort of like a more disinterested, you know, scientist stance when you're actually evaluating the evidence. Were you yes, making a face, Paul? Yeah, because <laughs> what you're saying is study the thing that it will be hardest for you to be objective about <laughs> and then just be objective about well, it. Well, but why would it be object? Why would you not be able, right? Like if I'm interested in student, like I, if I'm choosing, Hey, I want to find out what it is that makes students more motivated to get, you know, if to their, to, you know, for their education, right? I guess I care about it, but I don't care how I get there. Right. So the goal is like, yeah, how do we make students, you know, put more effort into studying, like motivate them to study. And then 
you know, the path to how you get there. Oh, in that case, I will be, you know, disinterested in how I get there. And maybe I'll have to take multiple paths. There might be some dead ends, but I will do my best to sort of evaluate the evidence as just, you know, as objectively as I can. Right, right. But you'll never question whether it's a good thing to make people study more and, and care more about their education. Like you, there's this core, right. like there's this core right. moral belief that like yeah. is off limits for questioning. And um, yeah, so I think like even you, there's probably yeah. some kind of evidence that you wouldn't want to find that like, um, that's a, oh wow. That's interesting. So if, if, if it was, yeah. So is there any evidence that could come up that I would be like, oh yeah, maybe it's not a good thing for students to be motivated to to have high academic motivation. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. these are all really good questions, but at the same time, you know, people are going to study what they're interested in and typically what they're interested in has something to do with their own values and experiences. And we certainly want, wouldn't want to eliminate that as a topic of study. So I think we probably should give people credit that they can you know, at least try to separate out what they care about and, and, and examining the evidence at hand. Um, I don't think it's that hard, but I think it does get messy after, uh, you know, after there are more and more incentives aligned in this one direction. Yeah, because if um, you don't care, I feel like when you don't care about a topic, then all then I think what ends up happening is that it's the incentives that drive what you do, right? Then it's just about how do I get this grant and how do I get this thing as opposed to, oh, I'm trying to really figure out this one thing and I care about what's actually true, right? Uh, so I do think you need to be like, oh, I'm curious about this thing. I want to know, I want to figure out what's true. And unless you have that, then you're just being driven by incentives one way or the other. Mm. Well, this this really is connecting to the um, uh, the Barry Schwartz episode, I think, because I, my, I am the same as you, Mickey. I came to grad school wanting to change the world right like um and this was i actually studied psychology and philosophy in undergrad and i did my you guys say that as if you can't do it anymore (laughs) that's like upsetting (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean well yeah so i did philosophy i did my honors in philosophy and the reason i switched to psychology is like what like these philosophers they don't have any practical impact in the world i want to have some practical impact i want to make a positive change in the world so yeah like when i arrived in grad school i was like yeah we're gonna you know find scientific evidence that um, income inequality is bad and people are super classist and you know this is I'm going to make like left-wing people hyper-focused on not being classist that's going to have all these positive impacts in the world but something has happened in grad school which is just like you come across these people um, and they're just these kind of uh, they just have a different value set. So, like, for me, it was Leif, but also this guy in the political science department at Berkeley, uh, Jasjeet Sekhon-Smith. And he he runs this um, causal inference class. And one, it's two semesters, and one semester of it is basically just him ripping fucking shreds through, <laughs> like, all social science, like, re- regression-based research and just showing why they can't conclude what they concluded and you can basically throw away 95% of this stuff. And he talked a lot about... Um, well, what, the thing that seared into my brain, and it was in my Twitter profile for a while, was um, he said, the scarcest resource in academia is not intelligence, it's honesty. And so he he basically just really, like... 
opened my eyes to kind of just see this this kind of industry that we have that is you know 95% liberal people all just like doing study after study after study to find things about the world that liberals <laughs> liberal people want to believe about the world for the most part and i think that that like i'm very i'm a very liberal person and and still am and i think always will be but it really has changed the way i see academia and and think about academia and it it was seeing these individuals just sort of and maybe Barry Schwartz is right maybe it's all about like <laughs> virtues maybe maybe you just need to like be exposed to these people that are so truth focused and and really like these truth seekers rather than like activists sort of pretending to be scientists that um have really sort of changed my focus and made me much more much more kind of aware of what i'm doing and and yeah yeah but i i just wonder i i, I just think yeah people need to kind of see that and and see those people well at least i did in my personal experience and um you know they're all being driven out of academia right now by like outrage mobs so um maybe maybe we're headed in a bad direction on that um uh well i have a couple couple of thoughts well first of all um i you know what i think what you're describing is not that different from what i described in my like you know uh, the veil being lifted from my from my eyes um this is this this moment where you're like oh shit this is this is you know how this you know how the salami is made and I don't like it. And it's not what I thought it was. Um, and that's, uh, that's a hard feeling to shake. Um, it really is. And it's, you know, something I've been, you know, I think struggled with since, you know, discovering that. And, you know, I have my own moments of, uh, you know, nihilism where I'm like, what's the point? What's the point of this? And then, you know, then I, then I, then I see a cool study. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. And this is real, you know? Um, actually what helps is when, when I, when I, when I look at, um, not necessarily only as social, I look at other areas and I'm like, that is so cool. And I totally am confident that, you know, that's real and I want to do more of it. Um, so I attended a, uh, a tech pre-conference, uh, at SPSP and there's a lot of people doing, you know, big data, uh, with, you know, I guess, you know, uh, behavioral traces on with social media, the internet, what have you. Um, but the work is in my, in my estimation, so rigorous and they can, you know, make good predictions about people. And I'm like, yeah, there it is. They, they have like a, a criterion, the prediction criterion that, that, you know, and they're showing that they can do something. And that's, that to me is magic. Um, so yeah. So I think, you know, I you know, when I have those dark moments, I, I also have the light moments where I am inspired and, and I think, you know, I could do, I could do that. We could be doing that. Um, so Sometimes, you know, having a broader, a broader uh, a, a vision of what psychology is and can be. It's not just the, you know, uh, the worst uh, of what you see. Yeah. But speaking of SBSB, we should talk, Paul, you said you want to talk about mm. Lee Justin. And... Before we do, though, I want to open my second beer because I finished my first one. I have no idea where you two are with your beers <laughs> I, and your drinks. I'm but always I... done with my beer. So this is actually my favorite beer uh it's it's not super popular but it's not super rare uh hogarden uh mickey you were saying it comes from germany it's uh well it says on it the original belgian wheat beer so it's belgian beer made in germany i guess but it, I wait, hold I on just, make sure make sure it's actually german maybe it's belgian maybe i'm wrong about that <laughs> I, think it, I think it is german i thought it was german too 
I don't even think it's worth a timeout. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <It's from laughs> What's the difference, really? Germany, Belgium. I mean, yeah, splitting hairs. One is the land of my. Uh, one is the land of my father. One, one is not. <laughs> my dad's from Belgium. Oh, oh nice. nice. Yeah. Um, anyway, I love I love wheat beer, so I'm gonna drink this now. So cheers. Nice. Knock yourself out. Probably two year beers will be one of mine. Uh, in terms of alcohol content and and also that mine's a mine's a king uh, you know, a can so it's 500 mils um okay so um spsp um i i went this year i i did a talk i i went to some other talks um there was um a lot of focus on uh social justice and um especially yeah like you said post george floyd and i just i would want to say like what happened to george floyd was hot fucking horrible like there's no nobody denies that like it was it was terrible and there was just this visceral pain felt by the black community in the in the united states and it and it was like a big cultural reckoning um that was probably positive in a lot of ways like a lot of people thinking uh you know doing deep soul searching about like oh how you know what's my impact on on this like what you know um racial inequality it's it, there's still all sorts of inequality between racial groups in the united states and it's good for people to be thinking about those things and to be trying to close those those gaps uh, um but also like it, yeah yeah also like not every not everything people do is gonna be a good idea or you're gonna be great like this this week there's you know it came out that the minneapolis um city council has realized that they made a mistake by defunding the police department violent crime shot up uh and you know that is harm as well right like you you know just just because it became very fashionable to say defund the police and and all cops are bastards and stuff like that very briefly it, like it doesn't mean that everything somebody says with those good intentions is is going to be uh lead to good outcomes anyway so that long preamble but basically at spsp um there was this talk about um i guess racial diversity in in psychology and um this talker i i ivy Olniador, I'm not sure how to pronounce the the last name, but um, she gave the talk, and it, I mean the talk the talk was fine. It, it was kind of focused on like the fact that there hasn't been much change, uh, especially in representation of African Americans in psychology, um, and yeah, the like th that's all fine, and I and I and I think that there's interesting discussions to be had there because often I I think that one mistake people make in these discussions and I, and I actually I was thinking about this right like so um there is this huge inequality racial inequality in the United States right um so in a lot of ways it's it's really not surprising that black scholars would be underrepresented in social psychology because you know we recruit from the top performers in um in undergrad right and and the people that get into undergrad are kind of high oh, performers right. in, in yeah. high school mm -hmm. right so if there's right. large socioeconomic disparities between groups there's real barriers um for black people to even enter, be in the candidate pool for um to become social psychologists right so it's like but i think like more and more uh and i i was thinking about this and i i, th I had a new thought about it that kind of made me understand it and i and i think that like if we were to say, okay, 
black people are underrepresented in psychology, but that doesn't necessarily mean that our field is racist. Uh, it's it's the pipeline, right? Like there's just not that many applicants. Like we are fine. Uh, the problem is elsewhere in this society. Like to a large degree, that might be true. Like you don't meet very many racist social psychologists, and I and I, to, for the most part, I think if minorities apply to grad programs it probably actually helps them a little bit uh, to be minorities and to faculty jobs uh, because people are trying to promote uh, diversity, at least these days. So it might be technically true to kind of say, well, this this underrepresentation is likely due to, to factors that existed in the pipeline before, you know, at SPSP, right? However, I can sort of see how that attitude might lead to complacency. Right. Uh, and, 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 and that attitude might lead to, well, you know, um, yeah, you're underrepresented in this field, but there's nothing I can do about it. Right. And I think that if you are a black scholar in our field, you you're just concerned about that complacency. Right. Uh, and you want people to be actively thinking about, well, what can we do as a field uh, to to redress that um, underrepresentation? Like even if it's not our fault. Right. But I think that where those conversations get weird is that um, in order to f- battle that complacency, people come up with all sorts of ways in which it is our fault, right? And in which like subtle things that we're doing, like Moin Shayed gave a talk and his point was like, uh, the underrepresentation is in part due to our over-reliance on experiments because like uh, minorities want to do more correlational research. And I like, just on the face of it, and I maybe we'll have him on the pod and talk about it more, but just on the face of it, it's like, you really think that's it, Moin, right? Like, not, not the enormous wealth disparity and dis- difference in quality of education between these racial groups. Um, so, yeah, I guess, like, we'll get to Legia Sim in a minute, but I, I, I should give somebody else a chance to talk. So, like, a- a- any thoughts on what, what I just... Uh, well, you said a lot there, so I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not I sure thought, where, where, where to start. I uh, thought somebody just gave us a review saying, hey, stop with the monologuing. Let, <laughs> let Smithy talk more. I'm like, is, he's not, yeah, he doesn't stop talking. All right, you guys can mute I would be, me. I would be keep this in. I, th- I, I think you should be like, you know, uh, uh, definitely harassing Paul more, Smithy. This, this stuff is gold. You know, it, you know that, that can always work. Um so okay, I'm not sure where to begin, but uh, so that's an interesting take. The 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 uh, Moin Say- Sayed uh, uh, kind of you know argument. I mean, I, I wasn't I wasn't there, so I, I don't know. I'm taking taking you at your word that experiments have, have, might have something to do with it. But on its face, that doesn't seem right because I just saw uh, we, I saw a talk this this week that had um for for uh, it was a, a, an analysis of, of replicability across various sub areas in in in. Uh, in psychology, and um, then as part of it, broke down each of these sub areas in terms of how experimental they are. Okay, and um, well, the most experimental area is cognitive, with no surprise. Um, but uh, one of the least experimental is personality, um, which I believe Moyen is part of that community. And as far as I know, from people who tell me that personality has got is like way you know, less diverse than, uh, than social psychology. Um, so just like, you know, again, I haven't done the analysis, but, uh, it, it seems like, uh, 
a simplistic answer. I mean, there's lots of reasons not to not to do experiments, by the way, and I and I I actually am in agreement that we've probably um, our field might have uh, gone a bit sideways for maybe an over reliance on it. There are other ways of knowing. Um, so I'm I, I like the message of experiments being overplayed, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I have to look at the data to see so what what the argument is. Yeah, sorry, Smriti, you, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, like descriptor work, I think should be valued a lot more. You know, I think um, that is something we should probably do more, right? Like even I brought this a point up in a seminar yesterday, which is that when COVID came around, I actually did want to ask you this, Nikki, because um, I was assigned to, well, I had heard this before, but I was assigned to listen to the um, debate on your podcast between Rob Wheeler and Samin Vizier about the COVID debate, which is That's great. hilarious. You're assigned this in class. Yes. <laughs> we <laughs> had to like funny. write like what the each side was and what the arguments were. Um, I, hope, I hope as part of the assignment, you, you got to answer like what beer was you well not drinking? <laughs> <laughs> we, we were not, unfortunately. Um, but I, I was thinking about how, like, I mean, when COVID came around, you would think that social psychologists would have had, like, you know, important things to add to that conversation, right? Because what we were really trying to do was get people to sort of, you know, socially distance. And I'm like, yeah, who else is going to have, a, have something to say about this? But I didn't see anything good come out of it. And I thought, oh, if all we had done was simply do descriptive work, where we're like, let's just collect, instead of everybody going around and testing these weird hypotheses that make no sense, right? I remember reading this one paper that was hypothesizing that people are not socially distancing because they don't understand exponential curves, how exponential curves work. And I'm like, we're trying to get people to do some, stop doing something that's so central to the human experience, right? We're trying to get them to stop interacting with other people. And your response is like, oh, let's teach them some math. Like, I, you, I don't think you understand how people work, right? So people were testing all these odd hypotheses. And I'm like, if all we had done was do more descriptive work, where like, let's just collect information about what people are th thinking throughout this time. I think that could have been so valuable, right, to people who are making decisions. So I think that, that but, but, I'm, but I'm curious where you fall in that debate, because it never came up. So where yeah, we do try, you fall? Yeah. Yeah, we try to center that one. I mean, we have another episode where we talked about it a little bit. Um, I suspect you won't like what I'm about to say, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my perspective is I think psychology should have gotten the fuck out of the way. Um, and like we have just been, you know, embarrassed and debased as a field um, for a decade and maybe we should sit this one out until, until we know a bit more. Although I agree with you, um, that uh, there is a role for us to play in terms of describing people's, let's say, mental health, loneliness, um, how they're feeling. Uh, what you know, there's a lot of things that we that we, that we could uh, yeah describe. You know, how COVID was like for people, or how it is like for people. But giving people advice, and then you look at the the, the paper that was written, and it's like. There's not really any, any advice there. It's kind of like, it could be this or it could be that. You pick. And I'm like, okay, so you're right no matter what happens. Um, so, you know, that's a cynical take, I know. But, uh, and I'm good friends with many of the, many of the people on, on that paper. But uh, I just, and maybe, maybe this is all envy because I should have been on but, that paper and have no, the, no, you know, yeah, the but I 5, think citations now. <laughs> that was a much better way to go than actually going around testing these hypotheses that had no ground to stand on, right? I thought that was actually at least a more, you know, honorable position to take. Hey, like, we don't know that, you know, maybe they could have given more caveats saying, hey, we're not sure about this, but this is kind of what we think is might be true, even though we're social psychology is on shaky ground. But 
you know, the, the intention to help, of course, is always there among social Well, yeah, it's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we all want to help. Um, and, and that's uh, laudable. But uh, I just, I don't know. For me, it was hubris, like, uh, given what we've just been through. Um, so th that's, that's my take. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the nihilism speaking maybe a little bit. Um, so that's, you know, that was my feeling on that. Um, yeah. But uh, Paul, you, you had like a, this, this long, uh, this long diatribe. I feel I barely yes, touched the surface of it. Completely changed the topic and derailed yeah, it. So let, let me <laughs> go back to the, the point that I was originally trying to make. Well, basically, um, what, like when I very early in my, uh, psych Twitter days, uh, and I, I just soon after I started listening to your podcast, Mickey, you said something that like, uh, has stuck with me for, forever after, which is that everybody is annoying on Twitter. <laughs> and oh my God. I mean, f I guess I want to thank you for saying that because as soon as you said that, I was like, yes, <laughs> yes. This is, this has just been like, you know, so becoming so apparent to me. And as soon as you said it, I was like, oh my God. He, that, he's so, everyone is he's their worst so... self on Twitter, I think. Yeah. Like, I, I everyone, agree. myself included. It brings out really terrible things. People are acting like children over there. Yeah. Like a constant I'm... search for validation uh, and approval. And, uh, and the character limit just makes, you know, somebody said something that I thought was really true the, uh, the other day in a tweet, ironically, <laughs> where they were basically saying, um, before we had Twitter, people wrote blogs. And so if you were going to write a blog about something, you had to really kind of think it through and actually give arguments and give evidence and stuff like that. Now, you just write a tweet and it's just hot take after hot take after hot take you don't have to provide evidence you don't have it, yeah it's just um it's constant so, constant barrage of attention seeking and no charity no right. no charity in, in, uh, you know because the, the medium doesn't allow for it but um you know so you actually pointed out to me paul i didn't even i didn't see it because uh this person has long been muted from my timeline um uh was you know someone i didn't like one of our episodes and said something and it was like man this is like the, the least charitable take on a, on a two-hour conversation and mischaracterized and like part of it is like well didn't have the really the room to, to, to maybe get maybe the medium just you know doesn't allow for that kind of nuance um so yeah it rewards you know short takes uh hot takes uh things that get your emotions flowing um and uh it's just not a fun place, at least for me. I know, I know some people swear by it. Some people say, you know, they make their students uh, uh, be on Twitter. Um, and I'm like, are you, do you want them to be unhealthy? Um, That's because, like terrible, yeah. Yeah. So I, I've done one thing. So I have actually um, cut down my Twitter consumption a lot, um, a lot. Um, uh, the biggest thing I did was I took Twitter off my phone. That was huge. Uh, because now I have to be on my computer and I'm not always in front of it. And I also have, uh, it's funny to say this because I'm a self-control researcher. One would think I've got iron self-discipline. I do, but I, I, I'm not, it's not self-discipline, but I'm situation selecting. So I've got these calendars where things get locked. So social media gets locked for me on various hours of the day. So I just don't have the actual, the amount of time to be on Twitter anymore because it's not on my phone and I can't get it, get onto it that often on my computer. But I would still check, like, you know, five o'clock, it gets unlocked. And I'm like, you know, just, oh, I'm going to go check now. have an hour of, like, adrenaline, you know, reading this stuff and getting, you know, getting off on this. Getting off on, on what people are writing and how angry people are getting and upset about, you know, all, all the drama. And the, But then I realized that 
all I was really after uh, was the drama. All I was after, and a specific kind of drama. And I suspect it's similar. Paul, I suspect you and I are similar in this regard. Um, maybe you too, Smriti, I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly, Paul, it's like, I, see, I see what you tweet. Um, and that is, you know, uh, finding and bemoaning and being outraged at, you know, wokeness. Right? That's like catnip for me. You know, I see that. I'm like, oh, my God, can you believe they've done this? Oh, my God. Can you like it's just like every day. And it was just like it was driving me a little bit crazy. And then it was leading to even, you know, conflicts in, 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 in my in my relationship, uh, relationships. And I realized like this it was just not it's not worth focusing on the worst examples, uh, you know, that the culture war offers. And that's what you see on Twitter. The worst example. So, so this week I got the, this advice and it was been, it's been great so far. I did a, a Marie, Marie Kondo of, of my Twitter uh, <laughs> timeline. Um, and I just, I stopped, you know, anyone who gave me a jolt of, uh, like it wasn't pleasurable. Like it was like, I, I don't, I, I know I'm going to get this angry here. This is not sparking joy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. This is not sparking joy. Um, I just either unfollowed them, or I know sometimes it's rude to unfollow people, so I mute them if if if, if it's if it's a bit rude. I don't block people. Um, well, uh, so you must have muted Lee Jasim by now. Uh, I have uh, muted him. Uh, I think I, I think I muted him on my account, but not on the podcast accounts. I still see what, what what he writes. He's a very interesting character, and you've talked about him on. Um, uh, your pod before as somebody that you know that is really doing a service for the field that the field really needs like we we would be much worse off without without Legion Sim but it was it was really interesting last week because what after that after that SPSP talk um uh so the scholar that I, I was talking about Ivy Al Neodor uh, just part of her talk was this offhand comment that she had heard uh, prominent social psychologists say that, um, quote unquote, we're good on um, racial representation and we should focus on more on getting more representation of conservatives uh, in, in. And I, I was I was in the plenary um, and I did kind of raise an eyebrow. I was like, hmm, I'm not sure many, many people say that. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't a super important part of her talk like she was just kind of making the point that the um, a number of racial groups are still underrepresented and there's things that we can do so lee he actually replied to sanjay srivastava so sanjay srivastava kind of was live tweeting this talk as people now do and sort of saying it's great to see ivy taking on this absurd argument right um and Lee, uh, Lee just commented and said he he just kind of asked who who said that. Um, can you provide can you provide evidence of, of who has who said that? Um, and it was it was it was interesting, and I found it frustrating and maybe even sad in a number of ways because w kind of what happened was Ivy replied and she said. Like, oh, this was from a SPSP mailing list where they were talking about an interview John Haight had given. So she basically said, well, John Haight said this. And then Lee, in a reply, tagged John Haight and said, hey, did you, did you ever say this? Um, and for me, 
that's all like fine right like i think it's totally fine to question something somebody said in a talk and ask for evidence and it's totally fine to just say oh well you know this was just something that i had heard john john hate say in a talk and um and then i think it's fine to tag john hate and just say hey did you did you actually say this so to me this is all like well within the boundaries of acceptable discourse between academics um surely we can ask people to back up the things they say and surely then they can reply and we can then check what they what they say but what then what then ensued was uh, to me just like everything that's bad about psych twitter because so basically um lee was then accused of bullying uh ivy and and like not you know, pretty blatantly ac- accused of being racist and, and sexist about it. Um, Sanjay said something like, well, I, I've noticed a pattern in the kinds of people that you target with this kind of, with this kind of thing. Um, and not, and not, there was all these people just like virtue signaling that they had decided to block Lee for for this bullying there's like whole threads of um of academics just like saying i can't understand why anybody would follow him as he repeatedly bullies people uh especially young women of color uh, this this is i mean ivy is a young woman of color and what's what's crazy that. is how they were talking to lee about it like i think sanjay told him to you know take a deep breath and sort of you know sit down or something and somebody else was telling him to cut it out I'm like, well, that, you know, y- yeah. you're, that's very condescending. So you tweeted yeah. about, so Smriti, you tweeted about it and basically said, look, if this is bullying, if bullying is this polite, I, I, I don't know what world we're in. And I swear, so I had a, it's very interesting because I had a job interview last Monday and the person that I was going to be talking to at this job interview posted about how um she sort of subtweeted the whole debate and said like you shouldn't follow toxic people basically you should just mute them right and i was like oh my heart kind of sank because like i really wanted to publicly support lee and just say no like it's it's okay to ask people for evidence and the idea that you know um asking a woman of color for for evidence is bullying is itself maybe a little racist and infantilizing um and patronizing but i didn't because i had this job interview and I, and i and like everybody was so up in arms about this but i i did debate for like 10 minutes and then finally liked your tweets smriti but it was like <laughs> it was just this but it's this it's this horrible horrible feeling of like yeah like obviously you can ask people for evidence but everybody in my field that controls whether i get a job or not is in an uproar and hating on lee and i and i'm scared to even like a tweet from my friend uh saying something that i that i agree with um so you probably missed all this mickey i don't know um i saw a little bit of i actually just saw uh smriti's uh your quote tweet that's all i saw um and i'm not sure if there was other stuff that was deleted or i i, I don't know what I, I didn't see the big uh brouhaha definitely not um so uh i mean i i think i i have a couple of thoughts well first i i, I also uh i think asking for to back up your claims is appropriate you know 
you know, I, there's a reason I, I and I told uh, Lee this when we had him on our podcast just last night. Um, you know, there's a reason I muted him is because he he does. I don't I don't think he does Twitter well in the sense of you know it's meant to be a short medium. It's meant to be like you know get in and get out. Um, and he kind of just piles on with like ten tweets in a row, and it can feel a bit like much. Um, and I, as a style, I just don't think it's, I just don't think it's good. Um, so I, I can, I, I understand why people will get annoyed with that. Um, that being said, I think just asking someone for, to, for evidence, and especially I think because, uh, he probably was worried that, you know, that, you know, someone was claiming that he said this, um, and he never did. So he's like, you know, uh, that's part of it. And then, um, but you know, the truth is like, okay, that's like a small part of the talks It's like, okay, she made an error or she misspoke. And I think in, in the end, I mean, what, what I did see of her responses was more or less said, well, I thought I saw this and it's certainly not central to, um, to, to, to the talk. So I don't know how, if it, he needed to like, you know, go on and on about it, to be honest, the, the part that I did get upset about. So I wasn't as, as upset about like, you know, uh, uh, his tweets or the response to his tweets, except for one. Um, and that was the notion that because he is a white man, he could not ask a question of a black woman. Um, that to me is, I, that's deeply problematic to me. Um, does that mean I cannot uh, mentor students who are not uh, Jews? And I'm like, I'm like a, a, a mixed Jew. So I'm like... Uh, half Yemenite Jew and half Ashkenazi Jew. Does that mean I can only talk to people who have exactly that lineage? Um, and no one who has a different lineage can talk to me? Like, that's, that's fucked up. And it's insulting. Um, I thought, I thought uh, Ivy's answers were perfectly reasonable. And she handled herself well, you know, and I didn't... Yeah, she didn't someone... need the entire like social site community to defend her like she she can handle Lee just him just fine like she it was very I thought her response was fine it was very professional and it was like oh you know like maybe maybe like that wasn't the best line in your talk to to say that if it's to say social psychologists plural for for example when it's just John Haidt that you're talking about um but, Although it's not clear he actually said that, but uh, yeah, yeah. But, but it was, either way, it's, it's a small, relatively small right. error in my mind. Right, right. Yeah, um, but the idea that you know a white man can't ask a question of a you know quote unquote woman of color, like I, I find, I personally find that quite insulting, right? Because that means that there might be people out there that are going you know easier on me because I'm not white because I'm not a white man, and I find that quite racist, right? If I think I, somebody's holding me to a lower standard because I'm not. A white man like i find that personally quite insulting also like let me tell you lee jasim will argue with anybody <laughs> on twitter like i years and years ago i actually got into a twitter debate with lee jasim and i like you know i i have a i have a similar kind of tenacity uh sometimes with these online debates so it like it ended up like i ended up collecting data from qualtrics to prove, prove him wrong about something and it was this back and forth from days but i'm not a woman of color right like and he went at me and like he but he is very like uh disagreeable um and he starts sort of making um you know, I, I like jokes, like get, getting in this kind of jokey, jokey way um, of replying, like almost trying to humiliate his his interactor. And I don't think that helps his case. Right. Um, but I also like, I don't know, for Sanjay to say, oh, 
there's a pattern of the people that you target and and really like pretty blatantly just say I, I think you're a racist, sexist yeah, person who believes so like unfair. young women of color. Like it is, it's totally unfair. Like it's very unfair. Look at the guy's tweets and replies. He he will argue <laughs> like, absolutely any color, any gender. <laughs> if Actually, uh, you'd be surprised to to learn. So I like, despite me not liking uh, his Twitter persona, I like Lee as a person. I've uh, uh, interacted with him a few times now. Um, um, would you be surprised to know that he can? He is actually a liberal. Like, no, he, not at all. Not at yeah, all. So, because I would all. assume, I'm, oh, he's the one. He's the one mm. token conservative in our entire field. Right. right. No, he too is liberal. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's how liberal the whole field is, right? It's, yeah. 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 yeah, uh, yeah but you know, so uh, one of the thing, one of the thing you said, Paul. I uh, forget uh, at what point you said it, but um, you said, you know, my entire field feels this way, uh, and it, it's really dismaying to me. So. I, I want you to like, you know, walk away from that because because <laughs> right, right, it's right. not yeah, yeah, your yeah, entire yeah. field. You're it's right. Twitter, and yeah. Twitter is not the real world. Like it, it's hard sometimes to remember that. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, where you guys are. Where at Berkeley. I'm Berkeley. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're in a particular version of the world, um, uh, a famously liberal version of the world. Um, but it is not. That is not the real world, uh, for better and worse. So, you know, uh, like if you were to just hang out on Twitter, you would think like everyone is open science woke, right? Everyone's doing all this stuff. They're into super fancy methods and do, you know, down with all the cool stuff, you know, R, you know, of course, you know, I'm not even on R, I'm on Python now. Um, and, but then you, all you have to do is step into a conference and, and, and see what people are saying. And you're like, oh, actually it's not like this at all. Um, in fact, the majority, in my estimation, the majority of people aren't on board with some of these things. Um, and I, I would say I would argue the same thing with, with the, some of the politics, um, although maybe there it's a bit different because, um, again, we, we just had this, you know, you know, you called it a reckoning, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. So we're in a particularly um, volatile period right now. So things might be a bit different there. But even then, like, you know, uh, what people say on Twitter is not the what you're thinking you know, when you see those talks. Other mm. people are thinking that, too. Yeah, uh, I, maybe a yeah. lot of people are thinking that, too. Um, That's a really good segue to the final thing I wanted to discuss with you, which is just how to maintain perspective. Um, because... You know, I I, I kind of oscillate, and I in in some senses, I I do think this culture war stuff is important. Like I I do think it's important for people to be publicly sticking up for academic freedom and that the value of truth seeking over, um, you know, truth before justice, as you've talked about, and and sometimes these things feel really important, and but like you've very correctly diagnosed, like it's addictive right like it's it's kind of addictive and compulsive um to so i mean one thing that i've been forcing myself to do is every day listen to the bbc global news right so like it's such a like it's 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 such an antidote because they're talking about like such important problems like the myanmar government coup and the protests in the streets and 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 things like this um but yeah, like I, other than like 
deleting Twitter off my phone, which I actually did. But then after we had the baby, I put it back because I had so much like time just sitting in the rocking chair <laughs> and I need something interesting to look at. Um, so, but other than, other you than that. You could read what, a paper or something, Paul, you know, that's an option. Like actual, like a paper newspaper. No, like a, you know, like, like a research paper. Oh, like a research phone. paper. Yeah. That's no. hard when you got a baby in your hand. <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah, I guess you get the PDF on your phone, and yeah, yeah no, that's, that's. I used to issue. do that that's on the bus idea. all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But my yeah, my thing is like maintaining perspective because, like you said, like these these people that I see behaving in this way that I object to on Twitter, I actually agree probably with ninety percent ninety percent of their policy preferences, right? Like it's this narcissism of small differences, and I don't think ultimately they're the real enemy in the world. Uh, there are really bad people trying to do bad nefarious things in the world and um i think there's just a lot of this stuff that takes up so much time on twitter ultimately isn't that important so yeah um you seem like you've kind of taken steps to like uh having a healthier relationship to this culture war stuff so yeah help me out what what, what do you recommend it's it's all a facade paul I, i'm not sure i'm any healthier than you uh, or Smriti or anybody else um it's a constant struggle it really is because you know i'm attracted to those stories you know like i i, I can list like five you know uh journalists who i just like their contrarian takes um but they're bad for me well, you know, Jesse Single, like, I've always disliked his uh, Twitter uh, uh, presence, even though it's entertaining. It's just, like, way too much. Although I like, you know, uh, you know, I'm sympathetic with him, and we might actually have him on our podcast again, hopefully. Um, uh, but, you know, there's like a handful of people, you know, like Barry Weiss, uh, Andrew Sullivan, uh, Thomas Chatterson Williams, uh, who are some other people I just deleted from my, from my Twitter uh, <laughs> list. Uh, uh, Camille uh, Foster, do you follow? Do you follow Camille? Camille? Camille Foster? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, okay, don't. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't. I don't, I don't really think I know who that is. Um, Wesley Yang, do you follow who that? Uh, is, I know Wesley. I, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but there's like yeah, a key number of people, and they just were retweeting and amplifying. Zaid Jelani. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. So. Mm-hmm. I, what, what what I what, what my Twitter feed ended up being was like the the outrage du jour from the anti woke crowd was like amplified and it was all I could think about for two days, um, and then I would think about it and then I'm talking about it with my wife and infecting the way I think about things and like I like you I'm also uh, uh, you know very much on the left and and agree with you know again most of the policy implications but just the emphasis I don't like. Um, but I, you know, I'm trying. I'm. I, I don't have any good answers, Paul. Other than I'm by what I'm doing this week is what I said earlier. Trying to um, not follow those people anymore. Um, I, I used to say this thing. Uh, you know, uh, reading the news is bad for you. Um, I, I still think that's true. I think if you no read the news, news is good news. That's yeah. Well, I think the the, the the actual news is like it's just gonna make you think the world is dangerous and scary and uh, unsafe and. We live in, in, in our world right now is way way safer than mm. when I was a kid. I'm way safer. Seriously, um, try and BBC Global News, right? Like, if you listen to a podcast and they talk for ten minutes about a locust plague in Kenya, where people are like r- literally running out of food because there's like locusts eating all their food. 
it's very hard to care about what Je- whatever Jesse Singles tweeting about mm-hmm. that day about New York Times staff staffers being unreasonable, Austin, mm-hmm. or like what's right, happening right. in Texas right now. Right, right. right I think right. if people just had mm-hmm. a bit more perspective about yeah, what's happening in the world, it would you know make such a big difference. Yeah. Actually, one thing one thing that I do maybe I maybe I shouldn't admit this, but. Uh, my Twitter, my Twitter, uh, so the podcast Twitter has become just beer, <laughs> like beer people we followed. <laughs> and then mine is, is, is open science, academic stuff a little bit, but it's, it's a lot of sports. Uh, I, I only, I, I'm a hockey fan. I'm, yes, I'm stereotypical Canadian in that way. Um, but it's like, okay, like this is fake. I know it's fake. It's, it's, pre- it's pretend jingoism and it's healthy or at least it's not, <laughs> doesn't drive me crazy. Um, so I, I see more of that, uh, you know, comedians I'll follow as well, things that I find funny and entertaining. Um, I, tr- I try to do that. And, and, and just to keep on reminding myself that Twitter is not the real world. It's really hard to, 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 to think that when you're, you're seeing it and all these people you like and respect saying these things and are going along with things that you disagree with. Um, you know, it, it, it's hard. And, and uh, just one other thing I want to say about Twitter is... I wonder if you find this interesting. Um, so we had a, we have a search uh, job search now um, that will be concluding in the next few weeks. Um, and uh, it was remarkable how often Twitter came up um, in the evaluation of candidates. Um, yep. And I don't think it was once used uh, positively. You know, it was like, uh, yeah, this person is like this. Um, so uh, you're shocked, Paul. But, yeah, Paul. <laughs> so they were saying, oh, this person's like this on Twitter. Like they're saying. Or, yeah. Oh. I mean, people commented on their, oh, what, what can we glean from their personalities? Um, what are they like? Um, and, I, you know, I think, again, Twitter is, uh, it's a version of you. It's a caricature of a person. It's not a full person. Um, so in that regard, it can... It, you know, it's not, it can be dangerous. It can be unsafe to, 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 to go on there and, and to tweet. It is, it, it, it is, you will see this stuff. I'm so um, screwed. I am so screwed. <laughs> Actually, JK Flake just tweeted this the other week. She was like, hey, ECRs, early career researchers, be careful what you tweet. Um, this stuff this stuff has a lot more reach than you realize um, people on your job committee. Yeah, she said, don't tweet anything that you wouldn't shout out loud in a conference room, yeah. <laughs> which is like, how many things am I going to shout out loud in a conference? That's basically just like saying, don't tweet. Yeah. No, but, but, I, it is, but it is scary because even that tweet that I made about like in response to what happened to Lee Justin, I mean, I think only like 10 or something people liked it, but it reached like 10 or 12,000 like... People Whoa. saw it because I looked at it yeah, and I was yeah, like, okay, yeah, yeah, a lot yeah. of people are looking at this, which is yeah. kind of scary, but I'm not, I'm not looking for a job anytime soon. And I'm pretty <sighs> sure academia will not exist by the time I have to look for a job. <laughs> so I don't care. <laughs> Tweet delete is your friend. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, Jay Van Babel once uh, recommended uh, to me to, uh, this is, this is programs you can automatically delete tweets right. that are a certain, a certain, certain uh, yeah, certain time age. old. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Paul. Um, just, yeah. Take a <laughs> I, I, so I I commented on the JK Flake thread and I and I just said like I know this is good advice, but I hate that this is good advice. Right. I, I like I, I think everybody's so boring 
and so scared about saying the wrong thing or liking the wrong tweet on Twitter are like it's so fake it's you're all like it's all so phony and 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 I just hate the idea that somebody would be like well he liked this tweet by Lee Sim. Um, let's <laughs> no, not offer no him comments like that. Nothing about mm. liking. It was mm. more. Uh, right. It was more like a, a history of tweeting, um, you know, about certain topics, uh, and and also being a certain way. Mm. Um, it's, you know, uh, people end up tweeting about political stuff on, on on Twitter, and you know what's that old saying? Like, don't don't talk about religion and politics at the dinner table. Um, so, but now everything's political. So it's disappointing, and it doesn't matter what what side you're on. Um, but like, it's disappointing to find out, oh, that person is way more X way. than I thought. So, this is actually really fascinating. I wish you hadn't brought it up so late in the podcast because we have to wrap this up soon. But like, what what were the things people were doing on Twitter that were ref- reflecting badly on them? Just in just broadly in general. Yeah. In, broadly. In uh, so again, without, without, yeah, without, without, uh, uh, you know, being too specific. Um, so well, as you wouldn't be surprised, uh, that we care a lot about open science in our job. That's, you know, part of it's in the description and, uh, we ask people about it explicitly. Um, and there has been, uh, I'm sure you've noticed, uh, a bit of a reaction, a, a kind of a, a pushback uh, of late in the past, let's say, year or so. People talking about open science as being, uh, you know, bad in, in, in a number of dimensions, especially in terms of social justice kinds of concerns. Um, so that's Hashtag like broken science. Yeah, yeah, broken science. I was trying to get you all always edits this stuff out, but like I was at one point trying to be like to, to reclaim that term, uh, to be like, you know, I'm bro, I'm broish and I'm into open science, so right. I'm cool, I'm an open science bro, I wear that proudly. Uh, he strongly dislikes that, uh, so but yeah, so so. Um, there have been uh, some people who've made, you know, uh, claims about open science being a certain way. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, really mischaracterizing, uh, the spirit of it. And it was like, well, I don't know if that's the kind of person who actually cares about this stuff. Uh, but I don't know, a year or two ago, we went from open science really being about, you know, these method reforms and these prescri- prescriptions for how to, how to, uh, you know, calibrate our inferences and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And then it became to, you know, open science meant now, you know, a, a diversity kind of push, um, which I get that. I get why that would also be part of making our science better. Because again, we want to the extent that um, we attract a more diverse group of people um, who have different points of view about what the world is like and what the truth is, then that's better. But if we are selecting people who look different on the surface, but all think the same way, that's not that's not necessarily going to make the science better. Um, so what you're saying is we're good on racial diversity and we need to focus more on attracting more conservatives. There we we finally have we found the prominent social psychologist who says that. No, 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 no. Well, that's wow, that's really interesting. So there was no like. It wasn't like uh, they, they're, they're a little bit too radically left-wing or they're a little bit too conservative based on their tweets. It was, it was more like attitudes about open science that were coming up or was it kind of... Again, the, I, I don't want to be too specific, but that, you know, mm. that was one that comes to mind. Uh, or there's like some where they're like, whoa, that person is just like, se- seems like not a nice person. Um, seems like super aggressive and uncharitable and unkind. 
Um, and is that someone we want, you know, you know, do we think they'll, that person will make a good colleague? Again, that, I, that's why people, I didn't get an interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm not trying to say that, you know, opinions that moved, uh, like a, a decision in one way or another, but it was brought up, like it was brought up in more than, more than a couple of times. So how fascinating, like I'm, I'm going for a couple of postdoc jobs now and I, I'm now convinced that they're looking <laughs> through my Twitter feed and I think one of these places will hate my Twitter feed and one of them will actually quite like it so let's see let's see what happens anyway that's crazy okay. so the last question I want to ask you Mickey's what advice would you give us in terms of how to make our podcast better <laughs> you know. Uh, that's funny. So I, I don't have much. I, I like your podcast a lot. It's lots of fun. But there is one thing that I've noticed. And I think you guys have gotten better, although I've noticed it a little bit is even here Paul today. Is it Paul smacking his lips? Uh, no, Cause, cause I, that's... that's not something I've noticed. <laughs> uh, I see you've got the pop filter there, so that's that's good. Um, so one thing that Yoel and I figured out is you have to, you can't do the verbal affirmations of the other person. Um, so when the other person's talking, you shut the fuck up and you just sit there until you see they're done and then you talk. Um, and that's really different than in real life where you can, you can talk over them at least the end as they're trailing, you you can start talking. Um, but it, it ends up for, for the, for the listener, it's like, I can't, I, I you, you can't actually know, you can't listen to anything because it's two things, two things, it, it's dissonant noise at, at some level. Um, so that's one thing I would say that I, again, you guys have gotten better at it, but, uh, but that's just maybe a little pet peeve of mine. I don't you know. Just edit those out. I think you can't edit those out. We for have sure. separate audio files. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. See the problem with that here, Mickey, is that if I don't interject, then I will just not get a chance to talk. <laughs> that's so not true. <laughs> oh my so God. what you have to do so is just like yell at him, be like, shut up. It's my turn to talk now. And that can just be like part of the dynamic of the show. We've had so many reviews where <laughs> they basically they either say I talk too much or they like Smitty but they don't like me or they even positive reviews they're like yeah great podcast but Paul talks too much so yeah anyway yeah, yeah. thank you so much thank uh, you for joining us spending your Friday evening with us it's now yeah it's very late where you are now yeah. so um yeah we really appreciate it Mickey so um, much fun to talk to you and yeah hopefully yeah we'll talk soon yeah, we'll talk soon. <laughs> 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 <laughs>